This morning, let me encourage you to open your Bibles to the New Testament. Uh, in the, Probably in the back part of your New Testament, you'll find 1 Peter, the first letter of the Apostle Peter. And we'll be looking at a verse in chapter 2, verse 16. And as you look for 1 Peter 2, 16, let me welcome those who might be uh, watching our live stream on the internet. We're so thankful that you're able to uh, hear God's word and look at God's word together with us. We normally are going through a different book of the New Testament, but on this uh, holiday weekend, uh, the thoughts of liberty uh, in the air, it's good to get God's word uh, to speak to those topics. 1 Peter chapter 2, excuse me, and verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. May the Lord add his blessing to those who hear, believe, and obey his holy word. Amen. It is actually today, you know what we're celebrating today, besides Alyssa's birthday. Is it Alyssa's birthday on the 4th? Uh, We're celebrating Independence Day, and and we should know the history of July 4th, 1776. I hope it's something we treasure. It's, by the mercy of God, a beautiful heritage. We celebrate our independence from old King George in England, right? Throwing off the, the tyrant and those oppressive laws and taxes that they imposed on the colonies. But... We sought freedom from King George not to live in anarchy and lawlessness. Correct? We didn't become anarchists. We became Americans. And even the setting forth of our independence and our pulling away from one relationship is presented in the language that knows we're accountable to a higher relationship. And as we flee tyranny, we continue to be a nation of laws with responsibilities and duties. You remember the language of the Declaration. My memory isn't as good as it once was. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. The preamble continues. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator, with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. That's a work of God, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Beautiful language by generally God-fearing and God-loving men. As we declared our independence, we did not declare our autonomy from our responsibilities to God or one to another. And yet with the birth of this new nation, within decades there was a populist movement inebriated with independence that wanted to cast off even more coercion of governments or use government to secure freedoms that they thought uh, they were owed. You think in our day people are clamoring for personal freedoms. It's had a long history Uh, Back in the early 1800s, Noah Webster tried to correct uh, this populist movement for power. And he said, we are mistaken to think that to obtain liberty and to establish a free government, nothing was necessary but to get rid of kings, get rid of nobles, and get rid of priests. He was warning that you can't throw off all supervision and all authority as he pursued liberty. He said that was reckless. So most of us probably agree with Noah Webster, the the guy who was famous for publishing a dictionary. But Noah Webster's in the doghouse with modern Americans. Just one year ago in uh, August of 20, 
20 in Time Magazine, there was an article that put Noah Webster on the wrong side of freedom. It was an article describing freedom, and all the bad guys seemed to be conservatives and God-fearing people like Noah Webster. They called him out in the article. How foolish he was to ignore the, the cry of the people for power. You see, in the modern world, in the day we live, you can Google it for yourself. Freedom is defined as having the ability to act without constraint. I love freedom. I love liberty. And we live in a country where it has been allowed to flourish. And yes, some people have taken those liberties too far. But now the cry is for a different sort of freedom, which is a complete autonomy and... Those who seek that autonomy to be and do whatever they want are using government to coerce the cooperation of others. You can search for the word liberty. Liberty in the modern definition is the power or scope to act as one pleases. Terms that were carefully guided in our first Declaration of Independence where those who put pen to paper knew they were accountable to a higher power and accountable to other men as they sought specific liberties. But today the concept of freedom and liberty is up for grabs and being defined in reckless ways. Christians, we must be biblical in our understanding of freedom and liberty. And I think you'll be surprised. And what God's word emphasizes. So I've selected one of many verses. There are at least a dozen verses in in the New Testament that specifically address freedom and liberty. And I encourage you to look them up. So that you can be be informed when the Holy Spirit inspired New Testament authors. What was the driving concern with freedom and liberty? You hear it today from the pen of the inspired Peter. Chapter 2 verse 16. Christian freedom is the freedom to know and do the will of God. We are freed to be servants of God. And it's a spiritual freedom, which does affect our relationship with governments and neighbors. Let's take up the first part of the verse with this declaration. Live as people who are free. Well, in what sense are we free? In what sense does the Bible use that language when it calls us freed men and women at liberty? Well, I think there's three areas. First, before God. We are free men before God. And maybe that language sounds a little scary because we still know and love and serve God, but we're free before him. Our relationship with him has changed because of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were all lost sinners. We were rebels under the, the, the glare of a just God, and we would receive our just punishments if we remained apart from Christ. But the gospel came, and the spirit came, and the new birth came, if you're a Christian, and you're in a changed relationship with your heavenly father, with your creator. Two passages that will help undergird this, from John 8 and then Romans 8. We'll look at them briefly. In John 8, verse 32, Jesus said, You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. What truth? Gospel truth. Well, what is in the gospel? You're you're dead in trespasses and sins. You can't save yourselves. But Jesus came to save sinners and did for us what we could not do. Pleasing God. Jesus, the, the law keeper, the sinless one, takes our place, pays for our sin debt by his blood. We've been cleansed. John 8, 36 declares, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If you're a Bible-believing Christian, if you're a true Christian, you are the most free person on planet Earth. That's the truth of God's word. Let's also take a look at Romans 8. Uh, We know Romans, the great uh, theological epistle of the New Testament. Just a couple verses from the beginning of Romans 8 show how beautiful this freedom before God, this first category is. 
when the apostle says we're free, we're free before God, listen. Romans 8 verse 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me pause. Condemnation from, from a holy God for our sin. We're off the hook. We're pardoned. We're forgiven. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's the truth that sets us free. It's gospel truth. And our relationship with God is changed. So, Pastor, what are you saying? Free in what sense before God? We're free from guilt. We're free from punishment. We are pardoned. The prison doors have been opened. Go free. Famous celebrity was released from prison because of a legal technicality. His spokesman was saying, my client's proven innocent. No, 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 no. A legal fine point was corrected. You're not innocent. And who knows, the charges may come and he may end up back in prison for what he has done. Christian, if you've been pardoned because of the blood of Jesus Christ, if you've been set free, there is no condemnation for you. You will not go to hell. You will not suffer for your sin. Yes, God will correct you and train you even as a parent does a child. He will form Christ in us. He will complete the work he's begun and he will fit us for heaven. Progressive sanctification, that's another sermon. But you're free from guilt and punishment. And you know what else? Hear me, religious people, on a Sunday morning. We're free from the impossible obligation to keep all the commandments of God to earn our salvation. There's no righteousness to be gained by keeping the the works of the law to earn salvation. You've been forgiven in Christ. There were some that showed up, and the book of Galatians talks about this. They were Jewish people who talked to a lot of Christians and said, well, you know, you can't just come to Christ unless you come to Moses first and get circumcised and only eat the kosher foods and go through all those hoops. They tried to add to the gospel things that we had to contribute If Christ has set us free, there's nothing to add to be right with God. You're free before God. God is your father. You may come to your father because of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, is the pastor saying, don't obey the Ten Commandments? No, don't twist my words. But the obligation to keep the commandments to save yourself, religious works are cast in a whole different light. We obey out of gratitude not to save ourselves in that sense we're free in Jesus Christ before God there are two other ways we're free though we're free among men and I wasn't sure how to use the language I'm still of a generation I use men and mankind for all human beings male and female again there are only two genders We're free among human beings. I thought about listing it as free among your neighbors. Well, what about the strangers? On the horizontal level, with fellow creatures, there's a freedom for us. And the Bible here in Peter says, live as people who are free. I think it's saying about how we live our lives here in this place, here and now. Not just ultimately in heaven. But even here, we're to live with a certain freedom. And there is the implication that we are free in our relationships among men. And that's the context of 1 Peter chapter 2. We haven't read the whole paragraph because we don't have time to preach all the verses. We're looking at this verse in this specific concept of freedom. But you can see for yourself that the context here, back to verse 11 and 12 and 13, he's talking about relationships In 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, yeah, that's right, we're heaven bound, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. 
verse uh, 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Yep, yep, that's relationships. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him. It's talking about these horizontal relationships in our life in this world. And you know what? We have a freedom in these relationships. Live as freed men. Even though I'm supposed to be subject to the emperor and other authorities, even as I have to uh, understand I'm a sojourner, I'm a stranger here, my home is there, I have to keep my conduct here, there's a freedom that is guided by truth. And you're free from other men in this sense. And here I commend to you that there are several John Browns in Scotland. I think this is John Brown of Edinburgh. He's written a, a very detailed commentary on Peter. John Brown says uh, we still have responsibilities to civil authorities, but he clarifies the freedom. So here, how you are free regarding other humans. We mean that the mind and the conscience of the Christian are emancipated from human authority. We mean that no human power has the right to dictate to you what you are to believe and what you are to do in matters of religion and moral duty. If the Lord has awakened you and called you to himself, he is your master. He tells you, he defines what is right and wrong. And you're no longer to be coerced or controlled by any other human being. Jesus seemed to be teaching this principle when in Matthew 23, as he's talking about the end times, he said, uh, call no man on earth master, for you have one master in heaven. Or Paul, I mentioned the Galatian letter, and Paul struggling to, to free those Galatian Christians from those oppressive Judaizers. Galatians 5 verse 1, Paul says plainly, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He's writing to people who are being coerced by other religious types, how they were to believe and how they were to obey God. Whereas if you're free in Christ, you have a direct relationship with him. You have access to his word. So there's a freedom among men, a freedom of thought and conviction. John Brown continues, in this sense, we're free in the exercise of our own faculties, aided by the promised spirit and these faculties we use to endeavor to ascertain what is the mind and will of the one master who is in heaven. So in that sense, Christian, you are free from the coercion of other men. Isn't this how the disciples responded to the Sanhedrin when they were arrested for preaching about Jesus? As I recall, Jesus commanded them to go and preach and make disciples. So that's what they were doing. And they were arrested. And the Sanhedrin said, knock that off. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. We don't want to hear about Jesus. They said, whether it's right to obey you or God, we're, we're under conviction. We must obey God. We can do no other. We are to submit to civil authorities, as we'll see in the next heading. But that submission is still with the sense that we're free from their control of our mind and our morality, our beliefs. We have one master, and he is in heaven. Jesus is Lord. And even if Caesar comes knocking and says, bow the knee, you say, I'm sorry. I know I'm supposed to submit to civil authorities, but I have one master with a capital M. That's the Lord. And he tells me in his word what's right and what's wrong. So there's a freedom among men. There's another freedom that is expanded on in this very verse. You see, the first part of verse 16 does declare that we are people who are to live free, live as free people. But he says, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil. So there's a third sense of freedom and that we're free from the bondage to sin. We're free from bondage to sin. 
Sin's power. You can say no to a temptation if you're a Christian. You can say no. You can fight the good fight of faith. That is fighting against unbelief and fighting against temptations. The Christian is saved. He's delivered from slavery to sin. And the Old Testament story of the exodus from Egypt is a beautiful picture. You're freed from uh, Pharaoh and his heavy hand upon them to come and worship God in the wilderness. And God supplies the needs of his people as they gather freely to serve and worship him. We're delivered. We're no longer under sin's dominion. Yes, the Christian can still sin. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand. Did you sin this last week? Because everybody would raise their hand. But we're working on it. We're battling. We have the power to say no, and God's at work in us. Here, let's sample a few verses from Romans chapter 6. If you understand how the book of Romans is put together, it builds. It introduces the gospel, then it talks about sin. In chapter 4, it talks about faith. Chapters 5 and 6, it talks about our new life in Christ. 6 and 7 talk about the the struggle Christians face. Chapter 8 is more about the victory. It's a beautiful theme. It's well written. Study it. But here, let's just look at Romans 6, a few selected verses. How we're free from the power of... Of sin. Let's start in Romans 6, 5, which says this. If we have been united with him, with Christ, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died, that's the Christian has been set free from sin. Let's drop down to verse uh, 17 and 18. Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Mm. Verse 18, so close to what Peter's writing in the text before us today. You've been set free, but you're a servant. We'll get to the servant part last. So we're free before God, we're free among men, and we are free from the power of sin. Just a couple more verses from Romans 6 before we close it. Verses 22 and 23. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God... The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See how it works. You're delivered. You're set free by the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And you live in a different way before God and among men and even against sin. Oh, and those battles are fierce with sin, are they not? But the Christian can say no. And with the Holy Spirit's help, become more and more holy and Christ-like. So we are free. But our text this morning, from Peter's pen, inspired text, says, comma, not using your freedom. Okay, here we go. We're free, but there's this important concern. Not using your freedom is a cover-up for evil. So my second heading this morning is we must not abuse our freedom. We are set free. And if you came in here wondering about Christianity, seeking understanding, pursue that freedom in Christ. It is glorious. Can I get an amen? It is glorious to live the Christian life. But Christians, don't abuse your freedom. So let's look at a few ways you would abuse your freedom. Three ways. First and foremost is this this phrase that he gives us initially. He says, not using your freedom as a cover-up for sin, for evil. And the word evil there is, is, is a broad term, even broader than sin. It's just a broad category. I think King James calls it maliciousness or malignity. And King James also uses the word cloak as a cloak for your sin. And I, I kind of like that word cloak. You wear that cloak to shut out the cold or to be less visible at night. And you go about in your cloak. Or if you're a Romulan and you're going to attack the Starship Enterprise, you use what? Your 
cloaking device. Why? You don't want to be seen as you go about your evil plans. Christian, you are not allowed to use your freedom in Christ. Think of the Christian's robes of righteousness. You're not allowed to use that to cover up behavior that is sinful or evil or inappropriate. And perhaps, I've never preached on this text before, so perhaps you've never thought about that before. Peter's writing to Christians. He's not writing to the world to change their ways and come to Jesus. He's writing to Christians. Just stop doing this abusive thing. So we need to figure out what this is. And the word cover up is excellent. I think that's a good uh, uh, translation. This term with the, with the Greek prefix is, is only used once in the New Testament. It, it's used uh, literally without that modifier in 2 Corinthians 3 where Moses had a veil over his face. It's talking about a literal veil with Moses, right? Here it's using it figuratively. You can't do this cloaking. Let's ask the question, how could freedom in Christ, religious freedom, a rightness with God be used as a cloak for sin? I'll give you an example from the Old Testament. Anybody here recently hear a sermon about King Saul? Anybody remember King Saul? Okay, you're tracking with me. Can you think of something in King Saul's life where he used his freedom, his religion as a cloak for personal sin? He was commanded to go and take out a people and not bring home any gifts or any treasures. Devote them all to destruction. The Lord was very clear. But Saul, uh, you know, he heard some animals. He said, oh, this might make a good sacrifice. And he spared some things and brought them back. He says, I'm going to do it my way and I'm going to do it to sacrifice to the Lord. He disobeyed clear commands of God and tried to cover it up when he's confronted saying, oh, I was just going to sacrifice to God. Sacrifice, that's a good thing, right? I'm going to bring him to church. That's why I did it. Saul was cloaking his sin in his religious behavior, in the religious language. You see that. That's how it works. And oh, that Christians in America would take this verse to heart and we would humble ourselves and examine ourselves and look at our behavior It was old John Brown who helped me the most here by giving several examples of how Christians can cloak evil behavior. And it's very helpful. So let's examine ourselves. He gives us four examples. He uses the word economize. We can be economizing, not spending, not giving of our money or our resources or our time. And, And we cloak it We use the term to cloak our greed and our avarice. Hmm, you didn't give to the building fund or you didn't uh, volunteer at work day. Well, I'm, 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 I'm economizing right now. I'm cutting back. Economizing sounds like a smart thing to do, but maybe it's being used as a cloak to cover up your avarice or greed. You're clutching at your resources. He says a person might profess generosity. And the practice of generosity in that term might be a cloak for your extravagance. You're going overboard. I just want to be generous. And you might really be seeking in your extravagance to win the hearts and minds of others. It's kind of a name game. It's kind of a semantics thing, this cover-up stuff. John Brown says uh, a person might claim that he's being cautious when he's really cloaking his laziness. I I really didn't want to give that a try just yet. Caution. Caution's a great thing to have, right, as a Christian. But caution is not give you permission to be idle. to, To forsake the assembling of God's people or other things you might be called to do. This cloaking business is getting close to home. 
The last example John Brown gives is that uh, many will profess that they're being zealous for the Lord to cloak their personal resentment or attack on others. Well, I'm only defending what's true and right. I'm being zealous for the Lord as I trample on my personal enemies. But God's on to us. He sees right through our cloaking device. You know, don't be that child under their blankie. You can see me. You can. God knows the thoughts and intents of your heart. He knows when you're cloaking and hedging and spinning. You know, those things we learn from the world that still linger like smoke on our robes of righteousness. Do we cover up in any of those ways? The Bible says, stop it. You're free before God. You're forgiven. You're not going to be punished. Live uprightly before him. Don't give in to the controlling pressures of other men. Stick to what your master tells you is right and wrong. Don't cover up your sin in this way. The New Testament won't stand for it. Well, how else do we abuse our freedom? Two other ways. We must submit to authorities. It's interesting that the Christian who enters the kingdom of God and knows Jesus as king still has responsibilities to the emperor. And as these words are written, there were some nasty guys in power. And we're not just talking red state, blue state stuff. We're talking about powers that put people to death for believing in Christ. So it really makes our unprecedented times and our troubles with our own governments pale. But even in those days, the first century, in God's word saying, do not use your freedom, do not abuse your freedom, and be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That's verse 11. That's the context here. So another way that we can cover up, I say, oh, I'm not going to pay my taxes. I'm free in Christ. I know they're only going to spend the money to do all these bad, sinful things. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar and unto God what is God's. If you study the freedom and liberty passages of the New Testament, they're not going to sound like a particular party's platform per se. It's going to call us to live differently than the world, to entrust ourselves to God and submit to those he has put over us. That's the default position. Submit to the governing authorities. But, but, submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution. You're his servant and this is the way he wants it. But, but, I think it's a shame upon Christianity when we behave like anarchists in the world. Because undermining the authority over us of men, I think also undermines among men a sense of God's authority over us. When I talk to parents, I, I say it's important to be firm with your children and to have parental authority and to interact with your children and teach them right and wrong and there are consequences because you're giving them their first experience of authority. And you're laying the groundwork for how they will come to understand the Lord in heaven who says this is right, that's wrong, and there are consequences. So here, we're not to abuse our freedom by covering up for evil and by resisting civil authorities. And, and yes, I want to put a footnote to that, resisting civil authorities uh, inappropriately or resisting appropriate authorities. You know, that, that whole catch. We've read Romans 13. We know what it says here. And the purpose of government is to punish wrongdoing, not to punish good. But this was written in a day when the government was pretty far gone. And God says, in, in one sense, says, don't worry so much about that. Submit 
as much as you can. My ultimate, your ultimate authority is to the Lord. So if there's ever a conflict and they say, stop talking about Jesus, you have to say no. But in so many ways, the theme of the Bible is submit. It's here in verse 13. It's in verse 11. In its sense, it's in chapter 3, verse 1. It talks about submission. Our life has different categories of submitting to different authorities. Do not use your freedom in Christ to live as an anarchist. It's against the, the, the flow of the whole truth of the Bible. I'm appreciative of uh, uh, Kent Hughes pointing out how for people in our day, this is nothing short of startling. This is about as countercultural as you can get. Right now, nobody's happy with the government. The liberals want more of this and the conservatives want something else. What does the Christian want? The Christian wants to live at peace as much as possible with all men so that we can serve the Lord among them. And we submit. Yes, vote. Vote for people that have good principles to bring about needed change. Do those things. But to constantly rail against the concept of authority or to say you're a Christian and you're exempt from doing what the Bible commands, it's not safe. Tom Schreiner says, Submission of a believer is never servile or rendered out of weakness. We submit to the government among men knowing who they will give an account to. Okay. You want me to do this? You you raising my taxes? I'll pay them. But God's going to hold you accountable for what you do with your power and your stewardship. So... We're in this position of rightness in a, in a strong relationship with our Father in heaven. We submit, but it's not out of coercion or because we're servants of the state. Tom Schreiner says we should never respond to God, excuse me, never respond to government slavishly, but out of strength and because of your freedom. And William Harrell and others have said Christians make the best and most practical citizens and neighbors. You know, if some places like North Korea, China could figure that out, Christians make the best citizens. Oh, yeah, Christians believe in freedom, so it may lead to democracy. But they're good citizens and good neighbors. That's our testimony. So we must submit to authorities and not abuse our freedom. And, and, and ultimately, thirdly, we must submit to God's will. That was explicit in verse 15, right before our text. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Foolish people who think, oh, you Christians, you're living just for the world to come, and, and you're not plugged in here, you're not responsible here, you're, you're AWOL. You know, fool, people say foolish things about Christians. But if we submit, which is the will of God, we put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You see, true freedom is not a license for acting rebellious or disrespecting civil authorities. Christian freedom is freedom to serve God and do what's right. It's not living without constraint, doing whatever I please. It's doing what pleases God and the ability to do that. We must submit to God's will. Finally, this morning, let's take up the heading, we are servants of God. Notice how our text ends. It starts with freedom, but it ends with bondage. Interesting verse, isn't it? Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You know, we could have come up with a snappy sermon title, uh, Free Bond Servants. You know, it doesn't jibe right away when we think of it in human terms. But we are free in Christ to serve God. The Christian is redeemed and purchased by the blood of Christ to serve the Lord. Freedom is for serving. Peter took a long time to learn that lesson. He had a lot of his own ideas. No, 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 Lord, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem and die. We're not going to let that happen. Peter, 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 haven't you been listening? 
God works in ways differently than the world, Peter. We are free to serve and even to lay down our lives. We're called to be like Jesus. John 4, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Jesus was always about his father's business. How about you? You're set free in Christ. No worries about hell. You've been forgiven. No, I'm going to take the easy boat. I'm going to enjoy life. No, you're freed to serve. The Puritan Robert Layton said, Though my enemies deserve not my love, yet he who bids me love them does. It's a Puritan way of saying, my enemies don't deserve love, but God does, and God has told me what to do, so I serve God. God says, love my enemies. God says, submit to the authority. So I do what I do out of service for God. And you know, the more we practice serving the Lord cheerfully and diligently, the more we will find spiritual freedom and have joy in it. The longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. We just sang that. And I bet people in this room would testify to that. We're free in Christ to serve God. And and we gain assurance from serving God. That's part of this verse. He says, you find your place in the world, Christian, not by running away from civil authorities or, or battling civil authorities, but submitting to them, serving God as you do. You gain assurance. What do we mean by that word assurance? How do you know you're right with God? How do I know I'm forgiven and I'll go to heaven? How do I know I'm a Christian? All those questions come under this umbrella term of assurance. How sure am I? Some people really wrestle with that. One way to know you're a Christian is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the spiritual fruit. We always look for that when we talk to people that need assurance. We look at the promises of Scripture. Does that make sense for you? Well, God's put it in writing and that promise is for you. And and you have a sense of believing. But... There is also this way, your service for the Lord, your fruitfulness for the Lord is proof that the seed that was implanted has germinated and grown as you bear fruit with service for the Lord. So if we do what Peter recommends, what the Lord commands, use our freedom properly and serve the Lord and serve others in his name, we gain assurance. God does meet us in the midst of that and bring us joy in believing. And here I would flip that around, gain assurance. I would also say you might need to question your profession if you're not serving the Lord. If you say, oh yeah, I've served the Lord all my life. I can't even remember when I didn't love the Lord. Are you serving him? Or if you take a look at your life, are you really serving yourself? Have you used this sense of God to cover up selfish pursuits? John the Baptist was a pretty stiff preacher, I hear. People came to him wanting to get rid of their sin and be right with God. He said this in Matthew 3, verse 8, very succinctly, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What's his argument there? If you've truly repented, if you truly belong to God, you should be serving him and bearing fruit. And if there isn't fruit, ask if there's a root, if there's life. And if you're not sure, make sure. Talk to an elder. Talk to some believer. Go over the gospel. Look at your life. And gain assurance from serving God. What are some characteristics of obedient service to God? We have to go really quickly because I'm at the end of my time. Um, A couple of thoughts, again, from old John Brown of Edinburgh. He used four terms, and it caught me off guard, but I think he's spot on. It's amazing how old guys can see things so clearly. What does this service look like if I'm serving the Lord? He said it needs to be implicit, impartial, cheerful, and persevering. Let me repeat those. Implicit obedience. We do what we do because God says so. If God says it, it's on my to-do list. Do you ever read the Bible in your morning devotions and see something there and you feel convicted? Oh, I, I should do that. But you don't. 
that's not good. That's called disobey, disobeying, disobedience. Because obedient service to God is implicit. If God says it, that's for me to do. Properly understood. Otherwise, you're just obeying the things that are agreeable to you. Well, I don't think I really want to do that. Who's master then? It's you. You're standing over God's word. You might as well take Thomas Jefferson's scissors and cut out the parts you don't like. It has to be implicit obedience. God says it. That's good enough for me. It has to be impartial obedience. You don't pick and choose among God's commandments. Implicit and impartial work together. But the third one, John Brown says, our obedience needs to be cheerful obedience. Do you obey from the heart? So many of the minor prophets scolded God's people of old for being outwardly religious, but their heart wasn't in it. John Brown says, mere bodily service profits nothing. And not only must there be spirit in the service, there must be a free spirit and not the spirit of bondage, but the spirit of adoption. It must not be the spirit of fear, but of love. Is your service for God out of love for God? And it must be a persevering obedience. Christian, you are not a hireling. You're not a hired servant. Or in today's terms, you're not just nine to five, punch out, leave the rest of the work for somebody else. That doesn't describe the Christian relationship. Our God is always our Lord. We are always his now and forever. Our obedience needs to be persevering. We need to be at his beck and call. Implicit, impartial, cheerful, persevering. Well, as we close, let me just recap what this text is telling us to do. It's telling us first to grasp our freedom in Christ and rejoice. I think there's joy implicit here. Why would I say that? Peter doesn't say joy here in the text. Well, you know, Peter started the letter laying down some joy. From 1 Peter chapter 1, some of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. This is how Peter begins addressing the people he's writing to about freedom and serving. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Praise God. Look what he's done. It's amazing. That's what Peter writes. So if we grasp our freedom in Christ, we need to have a little bit of Peter joy and do some rejoicing. Can we do fireworks in church? Anybody bring a sparkler for this? Every Sunday we should celebrate the resurrection and our share in new life and freedom. Don't just leave it to the political realm. This is the spiritual realm. But we also learn today we need to fight the temptation to cover up anything wrong, anything inappropriate, anything ill-willed. That broad term for evil here, that's the daily work. That's the hard work. And through it all, whether free or fighting sin, we need to serve the Lord and serve others in his name. My friends, if you've not enjoyed being called a servant Maybe you need to get with the program. You know, the apostles, to a man, they gloried in calling themselves servants of Jesus Christ. David in the Psalms called himself a servant of the Lord. It is a blessed title, a desirable title. Indeed, the angels of God who are in his presence are called ministering servants of God. What a high privilege. In this day, in us, to be servants of God. Let freedom ring by the gospel to make more servants of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is ever timely, telling us about freedom and and, and our place in the world that you have made. That our freedom is not selfishness let loose but it is freedom to serve christ to serve you father and others in your name 
May we be transformed by this truth and may we be salt and light in a confused world about what freedom and liberty is all about. May we see our loved ones reconciled to you by the gospel. May they join us as freedmen, as servants of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.